Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 194. It's about freaking time. Life had none too gently bitch-slapped Boynton thus far, or rather his pain in the early years had been done by others, but in adulthood, Pappy kept that tradition going with a series of bad decisions and his inability to find a way to deal with his demons. Well, life was about to give him a reprieve of sorts by keeping him busy, the next best thing for an anxious mind. As we have seen, Pepe had escaped Burma, China, and the Flying Tigers to end up in the Solomons, now the head of VMF-112. It was August of 1943. Of course, VMF-112 had no pilots or planes assigned to it, but one has to start somewhere. The forces of history, usually lost in the background, were swirling around Pappy, though he did not know it. One, he had his new position. Two, the Corsair was now in the theater. And three, Admiral Halsey was looking for tough pilots to be led by an even tougher SOB squadron commander to help him push his way up the Solomons towards Robau. And now for the last piece of the puzzle that was Pappy Boynton. Halsey made it known that he was looking for an additional squadron, but did not want to wait for a new batch to come from home. The man with the answer was Brigadier General James Nuts Moore, the Assistant Commanding General of the 1st Marine Aircraft Wing at Espiritu Santo, the modern-day island country of Vanuatu. The Japanese had taken the Solomon Archipelago and planned on continuing their expansion into this area. But between Wake Island holding out longer than expected, MacArthur's men throwing off the timetable to take Bataan, and the U.S. rushing men to Espiritu Santo, the largest island in that area, again just to the southeast of the Solomons, it never happened. And now Halsey and Nimitz were going to use the island base to gather themselves and push their way up the Solomons. The point being, Brigadier General Nuts Moore advised his superior, Major General Ralph J. Mitchell, the wing commander of the 1st Marine Aircraft Wing, that VMF-214, which had recently lost its squadron commander, should be put under Boeington, and he could gather up more men at Espiritu Santo from the pilot replacement pool there. At this point, the two Marines discussed Pappy's extracurricular activities. The Marines, hell, Southeast Asia, needed a hero, not a man that made Marine officers blush with embarrassment. But in the end, Halsey wanted an aggressive squadron commander, as did the two Marine officers. Hence, their conversation ended with General Mitchell saying, We'll go with Boynton. General Nutsmore had been a longtime friend of Pappy's and saw a chance to help out a brother Marine. Besides, if Halsey wanted a man with his hair on fire, they had one to offer him. Pappy figured out pretty quickly that, as he was the requisite goof-off, he didn't need a squadron full of them, so went over the men's records very thoroughly. Now, the beloved show Baba Black Sheep would have one believing that this was truly a group of misfits, led by the King Misfit himself. But Pappy did not want to die, and needed men who could help make that not happen, and he chose wisely. 
At the time of the selection of the 29 men, none were facing disciplinary action, and none would be brought up on charges of a serious infraction under Pappy. Some of the members of Pappy's squadron, who would become household names, if not during the war, then during the show about the squadron, had a varied background, like all the other American units in the war. But these guys would become synonymous with their leader in good times or bad. Most of Pappy's flyers had spent some time in college, like First Lieutenant James J. Hill, Lieutenant Paul A. Moon Mullen, and First Lieutenant Robert M. Bragdon, who was a psychology major and boxer, so he could debate you or knock you out if he did not like what you were saying. Others, like Major Stanley R. Bailey, Captain George R. Ashman, and Flight Surgeon Dr. James M. Reams helped fill out the bill. But for a moment of hilarity, Pappy would soon find that he was not, not only the biggest man in the outfit, but also not the craziest, which is saying something. No, the title of Mad Hatter went to First Lieutenant Christopher L. McGee. McGee read books about philosophy and witchcraft in his free time, and he would go into combat wearing a blue bathing suit, bowling shoes, and a bandana on his forehead. Oh, and he lifted weights regularly, so he was big and crazy. In fact, Pappy nor anyone else would ever challenge McGee to a boxing match. Another man of the squadron was First Lieutenant Frank Walton, the unit's intelligence officer and liaison with the press. But Walton had one more job, a secret one, given to him by Pappy's superiors. Namely, to keep Boynton in line. Yes, he was a house fire, but the brass only wanted Pappy fighting while in the air. And it would be Walton's policing skills more than his size, and he was another big boy, that was used against Pappy, sober and drunk, that worked. And Walton was wise enough to know only to interject himself when absolutely needed. No sense in making an enemy of the squadron commander on day one. In fact, on their first night together, Pappy, as was his wont, got drunk and challenged anyone to a wrestling match. Anyone, that is, except Walton. There was something about the man, even while drunk, that gave Pappy pause. Then came the downside. These pilots did not have combat experience nor had they had a chance to learn to fly together. They had no choice but to cut their teeth with the 33-year-old Pappy, whom they respected, especially if all of his stories of Burma and China were true. When Pappy first met his men, he was wearing dungarees, and his sleeves were rolled up. This was not how things were to be done. But, as before, Pappy was unable or unwilling to do things as prescribed by someone else. It simply rubbed him the wrong way. Still, since the average age of the men with Pappy was 23, the older man took his time and explained the advantages and disadvantages, compared and contrasted the Corsair with the Zero Fighter. And then, as if Chenault's ghost was in the room, though Pappy did not give him credit, the squadron commander then started repeating some of the same words he received from his former boss. Like, don't try to loop with a zero, because he will get in a tighter circle and he'll have you dead to rights. 
The same went for turning. However, when it came to climbing and diving, the Corsair had the advantage. They were to use that. And Boynton's actual combat advice would have sounded familiar to any ABG pilot. Get above him, come in on him in a high stern pass, hold your fire until you're within good close range, let him have it, and watch him burn. And while diving, if you did miss your shot, climb back up and do it again. Do not dogfight these guys. But the big ace for the Allied pilots was that the Corsair was built to get into a fight and, equally important, bring its pilot back alive. Not so much the Zero. And then, amazingly, as if to show that this whole time all Peppy needed was his own command to put his devils to sleep, he also told the young men that he understood that they wanted to engage and shoot down enemy fighters, that bombers were boring, as was escort duty. But, at the end of the day, the Allies would win this war if the pilots only focused on that day's mission. No grandstanding, no peeling away to take out an enemy wave, just do your job while everyone else did theirs, and in the end, one day, they would all be able to go home. If Chenault had heard these words come from Pappy at any previous time in his life, he would have examined the man for being an alien imposter. And still harping as the squadron commander he now was, Pappy also told the men to be ready to fight before the fight. Use your downtime. Think up new attacks, new tactics that will throw off the -the by-the-book enemy pilots. Have it all mapped out in your head so there are no decisions to make during combat, only instincts. Again, wise, rational advice that would go far in keeping his men alive and the enemy at bay. Then looking around at all the fresh young faces, Pappy next talked about fear in combat. It was natural, it was universal, but it should not be allowed to dominate. These pilots were to think in aggressive terms only. That was the only way to end this war. One day. Engage when you can, have a plan, stick with your formation, and stay on a particular enemy's tail until he is no more. And lastly, Pappy told the men, I expect you to do well, but when you do, no victory rolls afterwards. Why? Because back in Europe, British pilots started doing a roll after shooting down a few German planes, not realizing their own planes by then were damaged and a roll was more than the plane could handle. In other words, brag all you want when you're on the ground, but no victory rolls, or else that man would be out the same day. The infantry can always use more men. Amazingly, the man who could not tolerate taking orders from others was a natural leader. He made the men believe in themselves, in their flying ability, and in him. He would lead them to victory and survival. They just had to listen to him, and listen they did. With the pep talk over, Pappy knew he had only a few weeks to get these boys comfortable with the Corsair and comfortable with flying with each other. So, twice a day, up in the air, with any Corsair that was flyable. And continuing with his miraculous ability as a teacher, when Pappy had problems with one second lieutenant, Robert McClurg, who just couldn't seem to get the hang of the Corsair, certainly in flying terms, 
the leader, after telling McClurg that he flew like a big bag of piss, spent extra hours with the young man, who responded positively to having his flying tiger boss take him under his wing. McClurg would go on to be one of Pappy's aces, that is, having five or more kills. And the rest of the men would quickly come to appreciate Pappy as well. They were impressed, in a general sense, that he was a flying tiger. But when they saw him in the air and his corsair, the respect and desire to learn from this man became complete. It didn't hurt that one First Lieutenant Don Fisher challenged Pappy to a gunnery contest. The challenge was accepted. Fisher flew in first, steering his corsair at the target. Firing, a group of blue-painted bullets slammed into the target. It was impressive. Then came Pappy. His bullets were painted red, and by the time he passed by the target, it had been obliterated, besides which what was left of it was practically covered in red. Again, the men wanted to learn from Boynton. Having the men on his side seemed to be the last piece of the puzzle for Boynton. He was calmer and found the patience to train these men in a new plane. Another heretofore characteristic of Pappy's was his ability to communicate and trust other people, like Captain Stan Bailey, who would become the executive officer, and the aforementioned intelligence officer, Walton. They ran the day-to-day duties, leaving Pappy free for training, morale-building, these two are always intertwined, and preparations for missions. It was a dream team in that everyone was contributing from their strengths, while letting others handle something that was more suited to them. On September 7, 1943, Boynton's group was officially designated VMF-214. On the 12th, they were to fly to Guadalcanal and then from there to the Russell Islands, located just to the northwest of Guadalcanal. It would be here that Pappy and his squadron would contribute to the big push towards Rabaul. Just before they flew out, the squadron pitched ideas for the squadron's nickname. One suggestion was Boynton's Bastards, but that was shot down by the Marine Corps Public Relations Office. It was removed and replaced with the Black Sheep, indicating a group of 'er ne'er-do-wells. Next came the look of the squadron insignia. The final decision was a medieval shield bearing the cowl and inverted gull wings of a corsair with a bar sinister, a diagonal black slash that is the heraldry symbol for a bastard. A sheep stood in the upper left quadrant, the number 214 in the lower right, and a circle of stars in the center. See the episode photo. Again, the idea was to drive up the Solomon Islands, capture a bow, a major hub for the area, but then to move further north and subdue the Truk Atoll, today's Chunk Lagoon. Truk is located about 1,800 kilometers or 1,100 miles northeast of New Guinea, and its 11 major islands, 43 smaller ones, and 41 coral reefs, all forming a massive lagoon that served as Japan's main base in the South Pacific. To capture or even neutralize it, would go a long way of undoing the conquests of late 1941 and 1942. But the question was, how best to crack this nut? The Allied ships could not get too close yet to the Solomons, 
or they would become targets for land-based enemy planes to the northwest, which meant Allied planes would have to go in first and dominate the air above the next target airfield. Air dominance would be established, then the ships could come in and bring infantry to secure the area. Then the entire process would start all over again, further to the northwest. Added to this, the combined chiefs of staff at the Quebec conference in August of that year had, together, decided to choke off Robal versus invading it, which made sense, as there were 100,000 enemy troops on New Britain, and it was surrounded by ships and planes. It would have been suicide. This meant it was up to the Army and Marine pilots to carry out the first phase, taking the skies away from the enemy. By the time Black Sheep Squadron showed up, the Allies had taken Guadalcanal and were now on the Russell Islands and New Georgia, about 75 miles northwest of the Russell Islands. The main goal now was to bomb Bougainville Island, the last island before reaching New Britain and New Ireland. Specifically, it was the five enemy airfields on Bougainville Island that had to be neutralized before the Allied advance could go any further. On September 13th, Black Sheep Squadron landed at Banica Airfield in the Russell Islands. The two main islands of the Russells, Pavuvu and Mbanica, are truly beautiful, a tropical paradise. Problem was, Pappy and company were staying there, but really just sleeping there. During the day, and this would be the case for the next six weeks, this squadron and others would be raiding Bougainville. Though surrounded by beauty, their accommodations were far from nice. Powdered eggs for breakfast, spam for lunch, and then more spam or canned yams for dinner. This was occasionally augmented as one of the pilots would take the time to go fishing and bring back tuna or red snapper. There would be four pilots each to a hut, and alas, the plywood structure could not hold out mosquitoes. Thus, a net was over each bed. That was the real line of defense. But because of their location, these men would suffer through intense humidity, heat, and torrential rain. Indeed, some of their easiest moments were the flights to and from the combat zone. Of course, even this flying was done over shark-infested waters. It was truly a time to appreciate being alive. The next day, September 14th, the Black Sheep Squadron was ordered to escort 12 B-24 Liberator bombers that were to hit the Kahili airfield on the southern end of Bougainville. The fighters met the bombers over Guadalcanal, and when they all turned to the northwest, the escorting fighters broke into three sections of eight planes. To not only protect the bombers, but also to make sure that any attackers did not get away, the Corsairs, now in their three groups, arranged themselves thusly. The first eight would fly about 1,500 feet over the B-24s. The second group of eight were about 1,500 feet higher than the first group. This left the third section of Corsairs to fly about 4,500 feet above the bombers. Now in their proper formation, the three sections of fighters floated to the right and left, which increased their patrolling view. Flying up the slot, that is, the main channel running between the various Solomon Islands, the attacking planes approached Kahili. 
As luck would have it, the bombers made the trip with no attacks against them, and they dropped their bombs in a matter of minutes. However, little damage was done. To the outsider, this was to be expected, as it was the men's first bomb run. Still, the bomber crews were disappointed in themselves when most of the bombs seemed to land along the shoreline. The next day, 24 Corsairs flew along with four B-24s for a photo reconnaissance mission aimed at northern Choiseul, the large island just southeast of Bougainville. But, and this happens in war, the mission was all but doomed before it started. One Corsair had to turn and head for home for a fuel pressure issue. The same thing happened the day before. The next Corsair had to drop out due to a lack of oxygen for the pilot, and the next for another part of his plane was acting up. In fact, at least two more fighters were to drop out and head for home. As the mechanics had asked the pilots when they were climbing into their planes, for no pilot, not even Pappy, had a Corsair designated to himself, they said, You want the one with the oil leak, the hydraulic problem, or the one without a radio? As in, the pickings were never sweet. Fortunately, during these two missions, the Allied air attack and the escorts did not encounter enemy fighters. Still, the men got to see the professionalism of Pappy Boynton. Though it should be remembered, this was up in the air. But it made them ask, if he is this focused and alert during a non-combative sortie, what is he like when it hits the fan? They were about to find out. The squadron's next escorting mission was on September 16th. As it had been 22 months since Pearl Harbor, the industrial resources of the U.S. were beginning to show in the Pacific. For this bomb run, there would be just over 100 bombers and fighters, including the 24 Corsairs at Boynton, and their target was the airstrip at Balela Island, one of the many islands off Bougainville's southeast coast. As this would be the third attack in a relatively short time, all concerned were told this time there would be enemy fighters. Lots of them. This victory, if there was to be a victory, would have to be earned. Pappy had been around long enough to know that fear can negate any training. So just before they took off, Pappy reminded them to remember their training. Do not get into a dogfight, and if all else fails... Dive. Stationed at Banica Airfield, about 12 miles above Guadalcanal, the Black Sheep started their engines at 1 p.m. that September 16th. In just under an hour, they were to rendezvous with the torpedo planes, dive bombers, and other fighters. The torpedo planes were just in case ships were found along the way or were in harbor. At 1.50 p.m., all the planes from various airfields came together over the Munda airfield on New Georgia, in between Banica and Bougainville. This represented one of the largest, if not the largest, assemblage of Allied aircraft in the Pacific thus far. Now on their way to Balale, just over 130 miles, or 209 kilometers to the northwest, the fighters were wrapped around the bombers. Specifically, the dive bombers and torpedo planes were cruising at 13,000 feet. 2,000 feet above them were New Zealand Warhawk fighters. 4,000 feet above them were Navy Hellcat fighters. And 2,000 feet above them was Pappy and his black sheep at 21,000 feet. 
In just under an hour, the target area was come upon, and so the bombers went in, while the fighters stayed aloft, seeking out the enemy. And sure enough, just as the bombers began their descent, dozens of Zero fighters emerged from the clouds in all directions. The Allies had sprung their trap, but so had the Japanese. The next moment of this battle is hard to imagine accurately. As the 40 or so Zero fighters closed in, the nearest Allied fighters to them broke away, for this would not be two sides in a giant clash, but rather numerous smaller battles between only two planes. So within seconds of the Japanese appearing in the sky, the entire battle area was suddenly 200 square miles large. Because this was a trap, some of the Zeros went after the descending bombers. Seeing this, Pappy turned hard left to lose a pursuer and then dove towards the bombers. Making the Corsair's job even harder of protecting the bombers, there were just enough clouds around for a Zero to take a shot at a bomber or fighter and then dash to hide in a nearby cloud. This made the chance of collision greater in the clouds as well. But soon, both groups of fighters found themselves needing to hide to lose a pursuer. As can be imagined, this melee freaked out the new American fighter pilots. Fortunately, most of them seemed to hang on to Pappy's words. Find a target, squeeze off a quick burst, and then peel away, as surely an enemy was now behind you. Back to Pappy. As he was in his own dive, nearby was Don Fisher, his wingman. And in this moment, the entire concept of having a wingman paid off. As Boynton was focused on getting to his charges, a Zero raced in from his left. Before he could do anything about it, Fisher had raised his nose enough to let out a burst, and that Zero flew straight into it, bursting into flames. Lieutenant Hill was also saved by Pappy's instructions. He would recall later, I looked in my mirror, and there is a zero behind me. I see his guns blink, and I thought, Man, Pappy, I remember what you said. I did a snap roll and dove full throttle. I was not looking to see if I had lost him. I was just going full throttle down, and I guess I did this from about 8,000 feet. And then it was Boyington's turn. But as he was the leader, it wasn't his voice in his head saving his life. It was his instincts. However, instincts based on what Chenault had taught him. As Pepe got closer to the bombers, a Zero flew just in front of him and wiggled his wings, indicating that Pappy should follow him, and together they would lay into the Allied bombers. Clearly, the Japanese pilot had confused Pappy for one of his own. Boynton's mind raced with the possibilities. Staying as calm as he could, Boynton did as he was told and closed in, on the Zero fighter. When Pappy was about 50 yards away, he opened up with his six 50 caliber guns. Within seconds, smoke and flames emerged from the Zero's cockpit. Then the plane went over and to the left, then down for the last time. Boynton knew he had been lucky in that the Japanese pilot, in panic, thought the Corsair was one of the attacking fighters, so was allowed to get in close. But once the Zero was diving to the earth, several other Zeros spotted this and maneuvered to get in behind Boynton. As the other Corsairs had been diving during the fight when come upon, Pappy 
did the opposite, hoping to catch his pursuers off guard by rising to 24,000 feet. This worked as he was left alone, and as the bombing raid was over, he turned around to catch up to shield his bombers. But now that he was high up, he soon spotted a group of Zeros closing in on another Allied plane from about 10,000 feet. Not hesitating, Pappy picked one of the Zeros and dove down. With his speed and coming out of seemingly nowhere, he was able to get into within 300 feet before he let loose with his 50 caliber guns. The target plane exploded completely, which Pappy had not anticipated. As it was, he was forced to fly through the debris that the former plane had just been. Though unhurt, Pappy's plane did receive some minor damage and scratches from the debris. As the Allied air raid had morphed into a running fight, Pappy instinctively rose again and soon found another Zero trying to run down a Navy Hellcat fighter. With the Zero slowly rising to get into a firing position and Pappy coming down, his Corsair must have seemed, again, to come out of nowhere to target the Japanese pilot. And like before, Pappy got in close and let loose, this time with a long string of bullets. This Zero fairly exploded as well as the other one. With each second, the various Allied planes were getting further away from Japanese-held territory and back to islands and seas that were patrolled by their own. Still, the enemy was known for its courage. Pappy leveled his aircraft and looked down and around. It took a few seconds, but then he spotted another Zero at 6,000 feet. It seemed to be cruising. Was it chasing someone, or was it hoping not to be spotted? Either way, it became Pappy's next target. Boynton was about to dive down. At the moment, he was turning his plane to make it a straight line between himself and the Zero. When he saw the plane he was pursuing turn gently to the left, right away alarm bells went off in Pappy's head. For a plane that was about to be pounced, that was an awfully calm turn. If anything, the turn made him an even better target for Pappy's guns. But why would he do that? Suddenly, Pappy turned his head, and sure enough, a second Zero was trying to maneuver in behind him. The first Zero had been a decoy, a brave one, to be sure. Now, it's doubtful that Pappy processed or controlled what happened next. It might be more accurate to say his instincts kicked in, because he did not turn away from the pursuing plane, but rather banked hard to get a clear shot at the second plane that was trying to kill him. The problem now was, for both planes, Pappy's and the second plane, heading towards each other, the reaction time of each pilot had just been massively reduced. Either way, Pappy simultaneously turned and fired, which caught the would-be ambusher off guard. In seconds, his plane was a thing of smoke and fire. It was Pappy's fourth kill of this mission. All this was great, but Pappy knew he was pushing his luck. With each new contest, his chances of surviving, much less winning, were shrinking. Also, he himself was getting low on fuel and ammunition. But it was at this moment that he spotted two more Zeros trying to trap a lone American fighter who was near the ocean's surface. Obviously, he, too, was low on fuel and ammo and was hoping not to be spotted, but it had not worked. 
Boynton, not happy with how his own gauges looked, regardless, dove down at the two zeros. Right away, the two zeros pulled away, yet one of them chose to climb straight up. Pappy, probably not having the time to say anything, might have squeaked out, Oh, no, you don't. Not against this plane. Pappy pulled back and began to climb as well. Getting in close, about 300 yards or so, where his bullets from his guns met, Pappy squeezed off a burst. The Zero smoked, changed directions, and then began to head back towards the earth for the last time. And that's how Pappy became an ace on this single mission. With all this fighting, Pappy had little fuel or ammo left, so was forced to land at a closer, though less developed, Munda airstrip. The ground crew marveled that he only had 10 gallons of gas left and 30 rounds of ammunition. Still, they topped him up, and he flew off, back to Banica, back to his squadron. The men had done well that day. The black sheep, all told, had 11 definite kills and 9 probables. It seems that they had listened to Pappy, who had a hard time listening himself, but it had paid off. The newspapers, as you can imagine, made a big deal of Pappy, only the third Marine pilot to down five or more aircraft in one mission. But the day was not all smiles. Captain Robert T. Root Snoot Ewing was missing. No one had seen him crash or get shot, but if he was still in his plane, he would have been here by now. The black sheep had lost their first brother. As good as the day had been, Pappy knew there was always something more to learn, so he gathered the men and asked them what they had learned today. Their answers shot out like bullets. The Japanese liked to fly in circles while high up, then wait for a victim and pounce. The Japanese like to send out one plane ahead to see if it will be attacked, and if it is, then they all attack the attacker. Next was, the enemy certainly used the sun to their advantage. That included cloud cover. After the sun comment, Pappy told the men to use his trick, namely to stick his thumb up, blocking out the sun, and then look to either side of your thumb for an ambush. As the day ended, the men felt good about themselves and had growing confidence in their leader. As for Pappy, a day like this could do much to chase away the demons inside. He had come so far, had proven to himself that he could fly against the best and be a leader while doing it. Yes, it had been a good day, but there was still a war to win.